From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Cory Gardner says he's ready to fight for his U.S. Senate seat, plus his take on how tariffs are affecting Colorado. Look, we got to stand up to China, but I certainly don't support the tariffs and think it's a way to go, and I certainly don't think the exclusion process is easy. Then, how a Colorado woman navigated the world of patents when she invented a hood to protect your hairstyle from the elements. Later, new research in Colorado shows symposiums in ancient Greece and Rome were lit. Cannabis in the ancient world. Plus, what's an artist to do when their art is too weird? I paint kind of odd psychological paintings that are figurative and abstract at the same time. Artists create a home for their own work inside Denver's oldest art co-op. And a soul food scholar explores the history of barbecue in the Americas. Is there a Colorado style? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Republican Cory Gardner's Senate seat is considered one of the most important in the 2020 election. It could reshape the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Gardner says he's ready for the fight to keep it. It's one of several issues CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland discussed with him, starting with the impact tariffs are having on Colorado. So you've spent time over the August recess meeting with Colorado business owners across the state, touring the Eastern Plains. And what did you hear from them about the growing trade war with China? You know, we hear a lot of great things about businesses and entrepreneurship and ideas that people are acting on because of the tax cuts that have allowed them to keep more money in their own pocket to make investments that they wouldn't have previously. Uh, when it comes to uh, tariffs and the trade war, particularly in agriculture, commodity prices were low be- before the trade war started. And unfortunately, uh, the tariffs have not allowed them uh, to regain a footing. That's why I oppose the tariffs, and that's why I continue to try to find a, a solution that involves uh, more trade opportunities, uh, more open trade without tariffs. Uh, to surround China and the bad actions that they have with a a significant portion of the global economy so that they can't pick our friends off and try to undermine us. Uh, uh, This isn't just an interest of the United States to make sure that China behaves good. It's an interest of the entire world to make China behaves fairly when it comes to trade. So I think the tariffs approach is the wrong way to do it, but we ought to continue our efforts to assure the, you know, change their bad behavior while opening up Colorado opportunities. And so would you push President Trump to find a trade deal sooner rather than later? I have already pushed President Trump to find a trade deal sooner rather than later. I've been meeting with groups of senators over at the White House for well over a year and a half. Uh, bringing people like Senator Ernst and Senator Fisher to ag states, um, Senator Graham and Senator Alexander, more manufacturing-based states, to the White House to talk about how we need a trade agreement. We need to enter into things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We ought to have a European free trade agreement. You know, I passed a bill called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, and the president signed it into law on December 31st of this past year. And in that legislation, it directs the administration to pursue multilateral and bilateral trade agreements, uh, hopefully the, the first of which we're starting to see with Japan. Should American companies follow his command or order to pull manufacturing out of China? Look, American companies uh, need to have an environment in the United States that allows them to do their work here. But we're not going to dictate to them uh, where they they end up working. Uh, that's, I think, something that probably my opponents would like to do, is to dictate to businesses what they, uh, what they have to do and where they can work. I want to create jobs in the United States. But we can do that by making the United States more competitive, having a tax uh, code that works. Unfortunately, most of my opponents want to increase taxes and have the largest, uh, the most historic tax increase in the history of this country. That's not the way you're going to make this country more competitive. If we want jobs back in the United States, we have to do it by making the U.S. more competitive, not less competitive. Is there a way to make the process to exclude your products from tariffs 
simplified, less bureaucratic, with so much uncertainty? Were you hearing complaints about that? Oh, gosh. So about a year ago, our family business, uh, which is a farm equipment dealership, got a letter from one of our uh, suppliers uh, manufacturing tillage equipment, so making sweeps and chisel points and V-blades. And this letter simply said that due to the steel tariffs, the price of these goods will increase by 25%. Farmers are price takers. They're not price makers. They can't turn around and say, well, if I'm getting charged more for a a chisel point, then I'll just get more for my bushel of corn. It doesn't work that way. They're going to get the same amount for a bushel of corn uh, as they were before the tariffs. And so that eats into their ability to make ends meet. Uh, For our family business, the same kind of thing. I took this letter and I shared it with the Commerce Department and I said to, to Secretary Ross, you know, there are thousands of businesses across this country that are getting letters similar to this from their supplier, whether it's a, a, t- a chisel point or a rebar in a construction project, what are we going to do about it? And the response was, well, they can ask for an exclusion or exemption. Well, in a business that has maybe 10 employees, there's no international law department. There's no uh, international tax uh, program or import-export division that's going to be able to figure that out. So it's not easy to figure this out. It's very difficult, complex, especially for small businesses that don't have uh, thousands of lawyers that they can turn to, uh, thousands of accountants that can help them with this. And that's why it needs to end. And look, we've got to stand up to China, but I certainly don't support the tariffs and think it's a way to go. And I certainly don't think the exclusion process is easy. In the past, you've talked about presidential use of executive authority, and you've criticized Barack Obama. How do you feel about President Trump? He's certainly using his executive authority liberally. Well, if you look at uh, the the past several presidents, whether that's President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, all of them have expanded the use of executive power. And I think it comes at the expense of the legislative branch, and it certainly comes at the expense of the balance of rights and powers in our Constitution. That's why I introduced and co-sponsored legislation with Senator Mike Lee uh, to require congressional approval of things like uh, uh, tariffs. It's like a a RAINS Act, so to speak, for uh, for tariffs. Uh, I think we do have to rein in these powers, and it's unfortunately something that both Republicans and Democrat uh, presidents have done. Switching to the BLM, you were instrumental in getting the BLM headquarters moved from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction. And members of Congress, as you're aware, are now expressing concerns, some of them that this move will lead to less transparency and not as much interaction between BLM officials and members of Congress and make the agency less effective. I'm somebody who believes in the power of... uh people to make decisions in the community that they regulate. And I think they'll end up making better decisions uh, as a result of being in that community. Uh, I'm sure some of the people who are opposed to this would have loved to have the BLM headquarters in their states, in their districts, and they didn't. So maybe a part of this is that they're just upset that it didn't come to their district. But to think that only Washington can communicate and send emails and make phone calls is pretty arrogant. Uh, I think that if you're a, if you're a, a, a public land employee, and you don't want to live and work in the public lands that you manage and oversee, then maybe you should find a different way uh, to to work. Uh, And maybe you don't belong in the public land management agency. I think we're going to have better decisions. We're going to have better access. If you're an environmentalist, you're going to have better access to the director of the BLM. If you're an energy advocate, you're going to have better access to the BLM. If you're a farmer or rancher who wants to graze cattle, they're going to have better access to the BLM. We will have better, more responsive decision makings and a stronger public land protection because of this move. Are you concerned that some of the the people, for whatever reasons, family reasons, life situations, aren't going to move from D.C. to Grand Junction? Do you think that'll be a loss of brain power or could it be time for some new people at the top? 
Well, I know some of the people have argued that there's just not smart enough people uh, in the West to have the BLM headquarters. That's just absurd. Colorado is one of the highest educated states in the country, and to think that only Washington has the workforce that can do this job is just wrong. And so uh, I hope that people will be able to find that they can live in Grand Junction cheaper, better, and have one hell of a front yard view that they didn't have in Washington, D.C. So initially not a ton of jobs. What do you foresee in the future? Yeah, you've got several dozen jobs that will be moving to Grand Junction. Grand Junction is going to be able to say that they are the gateway to public lands in the United States, that uh, they are the home to the largest public land management agency. Colorado will be able to say the same thing. And there are dozens and dozens of jobs that are moving to Colorado now. Uh, And over time, that will grow. Uh, I've talked to the Secretary of Interior about this. He has said the same. Uh, We'll also see people who are traveling from across the country, uh, across the West in particular, to visit Grand Junction, uh, that will be staying in hotels, that will be eating at Grand Junction restaurants. There will be ancillary businesses that will begin. Uh, And Grand Junction is going to be able to market itself for new manufacturing centers and the outdoor economy and other uh, kinds of businesses to relocate to Grand Junction because of this headquarters. The headwinds aren't in your favor right now in Colorado. The president is not extremely popular. Democrats swept in 2018. Where does that leave you? We're about, what, 14 months out? Well, look, I I am very interested to see what happens in the primary on the left. Uh, Today is a day where there seems to be a tremendous division on the Democratic side. People are protesting the Democrat senatorial committee. People aren't happy with what's happened and the way that the race is unfolding on the left. So 14 months is going to be a challenging time for them to figure this out. Uh, But I'm going to spend my time focusing on results uh, for the people of Colorado. Uh, If you look at the the hundreds of millions of dollars of transportation funds that we have been able to return to Colorado to expand I-25 North and I-25 South, if you look at the BLM headquarters moved to Grand Junction. If you look at the passage of the most significant public lands bill in over a decade in Congress that I led and championed and made sure it happened, those are the things that we're going to talk about. And that's why I think Coloradans uh, are going to, in November of 2020, look and say, you know what, we like solutions. We like the ideas. We like the fact that you're the fifth most bipartisan member of the Senate. Uh, And uh, I'm confident uh, that we can uh, spread that message across the state uh, and, and win the election in November. Any candidate on the Dem side that you would most want to go up against or are the most concerned about? Oh, I welcome them all. Uh, I consider them all friends. I've worked with many of them in the past and have helped to collaborate on a number of ideas with them. So uh, I look forward to, to November of 2020. What was the last conversation you had with the president and what concerns were you bringing to him? I think the last conversation was probably last week, and I talked to him again about the need to find a solution on the trade deal. We've had a a long, ongoing conversation about it, and that's important. The previous time to that, of course, was just thanking him for moving BLM once again to Colorado and Space Force, uh, Space Command, excuse me. Uh, You know, one of the things that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in Colorado is while we have been positioning Colorado for Space Command, we actually have the Space Commander working out of Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. So that's a great uh, feather in the hat for Colorado. More likely that we'll get the permanent location. He's working here now. It's pretty exciting. Do you think Trump will campaign for you? I hope that the entire Colorado congressional delegation has a chance to have President Trump in Colorado, where we can show him all of the good things that we have done in this state. Let's talk about the jobs that we have created. Let's talk about BLM headquarters in Grand Junction. Let's show him our conservation efforts. Let's show him our renewable energy and our uh, traditional energy opportunities. And I think that's something that Democrats and Republicans would like to do. So, uh, you know, I hope he comes here. Well, thanks, Senator. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner speaking with CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkwit.
around you and you'll spot all sorts of patented inventions. The post-it notes on your desk or your car's windshield wipers. The United States has issued more than 10 million patents, and this year Serena Rolf snagged one of them. Her invention is a hood to protect your hairdo when it's raining. The Denver businesswoman is proof that even in this high-tech world, a person with a good idea can still get a patent. That's the subject of today's Disruptors, our ongoing series about entrepreneurship in Colorado. Serena Rolf joins us along with Bernard Chow, who teaches intellectual property at the University of Denver Law School. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Serena, your invention is called the Tempest Hood. It connects to a shirt or a jacket that you're already wearing, so if it's windy or if it starts to rain, you pull it out and save your hair. <laughs> what was your light bulb moment? My light bulb moment was when I realized that I have a ton of coats and jackets that are cute, but they don't necessarily protect me when the weather turns bad, right? So I decided right away there has to be a better solution than lugging around a heavy coat or lugging around an umbrella. And that's when I sat down and literally sketched out what I wanted this hood to look like. Um, And that's kind of how I came to it. Oh, and one thing, I like to look good. So I didn't want my hair ruined all the time (laughs) when the weather changed. So there's the vanity part of me. But that is why I designed it. And I think you're living in New York at the time, too, where there are some women. Yeah, you turn a corner in the big city and you never know what you're going to get. So, yep. So the first step was applying for a provisional patent. It's like a placeholder for a year. You tackled that alone. No lawyer. You work in marketing. What is that like for a non-lawyer and non-scientist to dive into the patent system? It was so intimidating. Um, I started doing my research to try to understand do I have something that should have a patent, right? Like, is this even a direction I should go? And as I started doing my research, I saw that there was an opportunity to do a provisional patent, which was great that the USPTO says you have a year. Think about what you want to do. And when that year comes to an end, you have the option to submit for a patent or not. And that was great for me because it gave me a timeline to set goals and start doing my research. So once you received that provisional patent, it really started the clock and you hired a lawyer. What was he able to do that you couldn't do on your own? So the reason an attorney is important um, is because a patent attorney knows all the ins and outs of what's required when you have an invention that you're wanting to push through the process. Um, They may not tell you that you can receive a patent for your idea, but they will absolutely tell you what you need to do to make sure that the USPTO office is going to ultimately review your patent application. Um, So he was able to do all of the drawings, all the figures, all the details and intricacies that are within my hood that I couldn't draw if you paid me to. (laughs) Um, But he also provided all the legalities around it, too. The right way that you communicate what you're trying to get across um, to the USPTO office is very different than the conversation that you and I are having right now. Um, So an attorney provides that education and that knowledge to make sure that you have everything detailed and outlined so the USPTO office understands what you're doing. Because it really is this sort of legal language that has be Absolutely. really precise. In the spring of this year, you got the patent for your Tempest Hood, and I understand that you celebrated in a unique way. Tell us about it. <laughs> I got a tattoo on my left shoulder with my patent number because that is how excited I am about it. I um, I kind of, you know, thought, is this, should I do this? Should I really put this on my body? And then I thought, why not? It's a great accomplishment for me, and I'm so proud of it. So yep. that's so fun. Do you, law professor Bernard Chow, let's bring you in. 
Maybe you can give us a reality check. When you hear Serena say that she filed for a provisional patent on her own, is that something that you'd recommend to inventors? You know, that's that's pretty unusual. Um, and to be honest, uh, Serena's the first person I've met who has actually done that. Um, I know others have done that, but that would typically not be the recommended process. There are some some uh, sort of traps that could be um, uh, that you could fall for if you did that. In particular, for a provisional application, you have to be very careful to make sure you provide a fairly detailed written description of the invention, because if you don't, um, you can't later file that uh, app- real application that claims everything that you may want to claim. And Serena did hire a lawyer, and they faced challenges from a company that had a similar design. With more than 10 million patents out there, how hard is it to find something that hasn't been done before? I think it is pretty hard to find that. I mean, there's a, you know, in particular, certain areas are what we call very crowded. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to get a patent that actually, a patent at all and a patent that has some coverage that is helpful for uh, the inventor. And with this field crowded with patents, individual inventors, they seem sort of like the underdogs. They've received fewer than 10% of patents in recent, recent years. How much of an advantage do big companies have? Um, the real advantage big companies have, well, I mean, the, the companies, big companies have two main advantages. One, of course, is they have staffs of engineers and scientists to actually work on uh, sort of new inventions full time, right? So that's, you know, they're developing technology that uh, individuals just don't have the resources to do. Second, of course, they can hire attorneys and, and, and attorneys aren't inexpensive, they're, they're expensive. And so obviously that helps them uh, with the process of getting patents and, uh, through the patent office. Serena, your patent was only the first step in starting your own business. How did you translate a drawing on paper into a product you can sell? Oh, good, good question. Um, I actually worked um, with a few seamstress here in Colorado to come up with a prototype. Um, the prototype was definitely the best um, experience for me to go through because it it came to life, right? But it was also one of the cha- most challenging because if something seemed a little off, I'm like telling the seamstress, can you clean that up a little bit? Can you change that? Can you make this longer, shorter? Um, which is what you're supposed to do with a prototype, really, unless you make multiple prototypes, which a lot of people do. They have four and five versions of what they're doing. My first prototype happened to be the one, except for when I decided to um, adjust the the strap on the back of the hood. I made it a little bit longer and kind of pushed it up um, to the crown a little bit more. And that's the so, part that connects to the jacket exactly. that you're wearing. Yep, yeah. exactly. So I did make an adjustment there later, but um, my first prototype definitely was was a success right away, and I didn't have to have multiple prototypes created. And then let's talk about money. Approximately how much did patenting process cost you? So there are different types of patents out there. I have a design patent, um, and it can range from start to finish, as high as $25,000. It just really depends on your attorney and how much involvement you have with your attorney. <clears throat> Excuse me. It also depends on how many times you're defending your patent throughout the process. So how often are you calling your attorney, emailing your attorney, and how, how often is the attorney writing the USPTO? All those things cost. Um, I didn't spend that much, thank heavens, because my patent attorney and I, he just believed so much in my product that we worked really well together. And he was just as excited as I was. So I didn't have to spend a lot of dollars for every phone call. Um, But ultimately, it can cost $25,000 plus 
for a That's patent. steep. And how much it do you is. charge for a hood? $25. I need to add a couple zeros. <laughs> right. Um, do you think that the cost of the patent, I know you said you didn't spend 25000 but it sounds like it's still a pretty steep cost. Do you think the cost of the patent will be worth it in the end? I hope so. I mean, just the journey alone has been amazing for me. Um, having the USPTO office here in Colorado has definitely helped that process for me as well. Um, but I, I'm hoping that, you know, I can at least take my knowledge and experience and educate women like myself or other entrepreneurs who have an idea and just don't really know what they should do, like help them figure out their journey, um, to me would be such a value add, even if it's not in the form of dollars. Bernard, what's your experience with that? Is it worth it for most people to patent their inventions? That's a really hard question. Um, you know, it, uh, there, there are a couple ways you can measure the worth. One, one is, can you prevent competitors from copying what you do right, or doing something very, very similar? And that really depends on how crowded the field is and, and the claims that you got issued in the patent. So sometimes, to be honest, it's worth it and sometimes it's not. Uh, but that's not the only reason that people get patents. Some people really um, show it as a sort of a signaling device that this is sort of new innovation, right? And uh, really, that's uh, that has turned out to be very important for investors uh, that invest in startup companies. They often uh, just look for patents as a sort of sign that you're really doing something new and important. And sometimes the scope isn't as important to them, oddly. Now, Serena, you're something of a rarity, a patent holder who is African-American. The patent office doesn't collect demographics, so it's hard to get exact numbers. But one study found that African-Americans only receive 3% of patents awarded in recent years. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a great question. I don't know why that is. My first guess would be the education around what the part process looks like isn't readily available to um, people of color, right? And that's not to say it's not out there, but they don't know how to investigate or look for it. Um, and so I think that that's intimidating. You hear USPTO and people are like, oh, that's big. That makes me nervous. Um, and I would like to, as I said earlier, help people move through that process and understand that process so it isn't so big and scary. It is a the USPTO office is here to help. You don't have to go to an attorney right away, but you should be doing your research. And if you have um, a USPTO office that's in your local area, why not use them like you use a library? It's it's just as convenient. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Bernard Chow is professor at DU Law School. Serena Rolf is the inventor of the Tempest Hood, which protects your hair from the elements. They spoke about the patenting process as a part of our ongoing series on entrepreneurship disruptors. Tomorrow on Colorado Matters, the Rocky Mountain Patent and Trademark Office opened in Denver in 2014. It's one of only four satellites outside the Washington, D.C. area. We'll hear from its director about the impact the office has had. It's no secret, the ancient Greeks and Romans loved their wine. But another intoxicating substance often found its way into their symposiums? Cannabis. That's what CU Denver professor Alan Sumler reveals in his new book, Cannabis in the Ancient Greek and Roman World. Hi, Alan. Hello. 
how were they using cannabis at these symposiums, which were basically big Friday night parties? Right. According to the Roman doctor, Galen, uh, they were putting them in food and cakes and drinking them after they had been drinking alcohol. They were eating the cakes as an after, as a dessert, as it were. So these are something like ancient world's pot brownies. This is exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. You note right off the bat in your book that very little research has been done on the use of psychoactive cannabis in the ancient world. Most scholars just focus on the hemp plant. Why is that? Well, because hemp was common in using, uh, they, ma- they used it to make sails, to make clothes and sandals, and they used it um, as, as a food nutrient. Of course, what people did not realize, um, that is the classical scholars, that hemp and cannabis were one and the same. It was the same plant. It had not been, uh, today it is kind of like two plants, although botanists disagree on this. Today it's definitely two different uh, types. Uh, back then it was just one. So it's likely that the hemp that was being put into these cakes, it was still psychoactive. Ex- exactly, for sure. And I wonder, was there much of a stigma back then about using psychoactive chemicals? Um for the Greeks, the uh, allowed space to use these chemicals, to use psychoactive substances, was at the symposium, at the party, or also in medicine or at religious experiences. But the Greeks uh, liked to call their intoxication wine and incense. Uh, they were a bit prejudiced against foreign usage, foreign intoxication. So they made fun of the Scythians, who notoriously used cannabis. Um, and the Scythians were used as an example by the Greeks in comedy and tragedy or in oration uh, as being too, too intoxicated. We don't do it that way. Uh, but we believe the Greeks were doing it that way um, in their wine and in their religious incense as well. That's really interesting. Let's talk about how cannabis was used in ancient medicine. What were they treating with it? Um, We have a very firm record of ancient medicine uh, in the Roman system, and it continues throughout the empire and into the Middle Ages. Um, A lot of references to cannabis and humoral medicine, which is the type of medicine they subscribe to, the system. um, Cannabis was used to dry the humors or thin the humors. It was a a substance used for drying them out. In humoral medicine, you try and balance the humors. And illness is considered an imbalance. So cannabis was used to help balance the humors. In particular, it treated ill digestion. It treated ear pain and ear inflammation. It treated skin inflammation and things like that. And it was used to treat any kind of tumors on the inside or outside of the body. And then it was also used uh, in a very interesting method, uh, manner, to treat what they call nocturnal emissions, It was known to dry up the male semen, and it was used to treat issues of what we would call um, wet dreams. How strange. It's very, yeah, part of their more magical system, religious system. How does the use of cannabis differ from what they were doing with hemp? And I think that you mentioned that they're really the same plant at that time, so it probably didn't differ a lot. Right. So in in the uh, Roman, uh, during the Roman Empire, uh, Pliny wrote this book called The Natural Histories, and he covers a lot about farming um, and and trade in Rome. And he discusses uh, cannabis specifically in many passages. And he describes how they would harvest it, and they would separate the stalks from the flowers. And the flowers were used then for medicine and for food. And then the stalks were used for uh, cordage, rope, and and making clothes. 
There's one more way the Greeks and Romans used cannabis in religion. Tell me about that. Well, this is um, a more difficult topic to find, although in parallel cultures like uh, the Assyrians in Turkey in the 8th century BCE, or the Scythians, again, who lived around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea as early as the 8th century BCE, they obviously used it in their religion. Uh, For the Greeks, we have some evidence they used it in their religion from uh, physical artifacts and material artifacts. And the Greek usage, although it's hard to establish it, is very similar to the usage of the parallel cultures, uh, for instance, of the Scythians. That is, that it was used in burial, um, part of the funeral tradition. Oh, that is so interesting. And I actually, I thought that this was one of the great parts of your book. They were using it to communicate with the dead? This is exactly right. Um, In other cultures, like the Scythians and the uh, ancient Chinese culture, the Gushi, um, they use cannabis... uh, at the time of the burial, and they buried cannabis with the deceased so they can continue talking to that deceased person and the dead. In the ancient Greek world, in the Illyrian coast of uh, Greece, which is northwest Greece, um, we have a very famous oracle uh, place of religious worship where people came to speak to the dead by using cannabis and sitting with the priestess. This is called the Oracle of Thesportia. And we have a very long history of it going back to the Greek, almost the Bronze Age of Greece. Why hasn't there been more research on cannabis in the ancient world? I think people have missed it uh, because they assume hemp is everywhere. It's a very common item. The word for hemp in ancient Greece is cannabis. And that's everywhere and accepted. Um, And when they think of intoxication, they think of, of wine, which we know now was not very potent for the Greeks, and that they added herbs and substances to the wine. Uh, But that's a new theory that's just coming out. So people just think they did wine and that they did not use these other drugs unless it was in medicine. Um, So that sort of causes a prejudice. So that's interesting that these prejudices could even steer the way research is done. Absolutely. Um, Because the Greeks, well, the Greeks more so than the Romans, always uh, make fun of too much intoxication in other cultures. And also, if we look at the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they always preach like moderation. Their culture embraced this idea. Even the Roman culture had this idea of things being done in moderation. Intoxication doesn't fit in. And um, according to a lot of the Roman writers, uh, Romans like to get very intoxicated and wander the streets and, and, and really... Um, be very intoxicated. And people thought this was not morally correct. Although they did this, of course, at the symposium, it was about place. Um, but each culture has their their dialogue with, with too much drugs, you know. And why do you think it's important that there's a better understanding of cannabis's role in the ancient world? I think it helps. Um, I think it helps cure the history of the plant legit because i think today we're trying to legitimize the plant and now we can look back at history now that it's very legitimate today and becoming legal um, and the stigmas removed we can look back through history and see its true role in history because when you read uh, what uh, archaeologists sorry anthropologists and archaeobotanists say is uh, the cannabis human relationship goes back to 12,000 bce and we've had an evolutionary relationship with this plant that's always been a food source and medicine source for humans. So we see it in a bigger light. And then we understand today why it has curative benefits. Humans have always been using it for curative reasons since the beginning. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much.
Alan Sumler is a professor at CU Denver and has written the book Cannabis in the Ancient Greek and Roman World. Sumler is also a consultant for hemp and cannabis farms. When we come back, putting a spark into the local art scene. Plus, if you're already dreaming of Labor Day cookout, the self-described soul food scholar shares his take on barbecue Colorado style. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Spark Gallery in Denver is run by the very artists whose work you see on its walls. And it's been like that for 40 years. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf introduces us to some of the founders and veterans of the city's oldest existing art co-op. The idea for Spark materialized during something called Art Bar. These were happy hours around Denver organized by artists for artists to talk about art a place to exchange ideas, says Spark co-founder Andrew Libertone. You know, there were working-class bars, and we'd all meet there sometimes on Fridays. A common topic of conversation was the lack of opportunities for contemporary artists. Painter Margaret Newman, another original member, says most galleries back then would only show work considered commercially viable. Her art didn't quite fit in. I paint kind of odd psychological paintings that are figurative and abstract at the same time. Jerry Johnson didn't want to join the commercial scene either. He's another founding member and says there wasn't a single defining aesthetic of Spark's original members. But they were all tired of hearing their art was too weird, too mathematical, too this, too that. People wanted to do things, and I think having a co-op was a way of kind of empowering ourselves. If there's no place to show, we'll do it ourselves. And that's what they did. 14 artists, many who knew each other from CU Boulder, decided to create something together, a venue to show their art. It was 1979. Now they needed a name. Spark was named after my dog, Sparky. He was a very bad dog, but he was my bad dog, and I loved him. (laughs) The names they were coming up, in my opinion, were so pretentious, like 33rd Street Osage Project. Who has a name like that? That name had to do with the original address of Spark. Bolt out of the blue. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the suggested names. Remember those names, though, Jerry? Weren't they awful? Just That's the only one I remember, and I'm glad that didn't take. And I thought, let's just get real. Let's call it Sparky's. But that sounded like a bar. They simplified it. Spark. It was good, they all decided. Clear, easy to remember, but still distinct. The artists held their first show in late September of that year. They had managed to rent a vacated neighborhood grocery store in North Denver. Andrew Libertone says a lot of grunt work had to be done to get the place ready. People had to build walls. People had to figure out lighting systems. And it was a, it was a fairly rough situation. But I think that there was this certain energy that we were moving ahead and doing stuff. The artists remember good turnout at early shows, saying the building would be full and people would hang out on the sidewalk. But a co-op is a lot of work. The artists had to set up and take down shows, supervise shows, balance the books. Because of that, 
some original members didn't stick around long. They were trying to juggle the co-op with jobs and families. But those who departed were replaced rather quickly. I'm Sally Elliott. I joined Spark probably three years after it had started. One of her favorite memories from the early years was working with neighborhood kids on art projects. We covered all the walls with paper and just let them paint whatever they wanted to paint. She also remembers when they hired graffiti artists to paint the walls and the time when some artists did an installation that had chickens living at the co-op. Elliot, who is still a member, says she felt at home at Spark. No one judged her for her style of art, and no one judged her for being a woman, something that Margaret Newman also felt. I was in school at a time when women were not considered on the same level, and it was like the men were the artists and the women were the chicks. But she wasn't just some chick at Spark. Denver's art scene was growing by the early and mid-'80s. Lots of interesting stuff going on, Newman says. And other artist co-ops had popped up in Denver, like Pirate. Spark has moved around a few times and is now located on Santa Fe Drive. They recently committed to staying for a while. We just signed a five-year lease here. This is Mark Brasual. He's Spark's president and has long been involved with the Denver Arts Co-op movement, including as a founding member of Edge Cooperative. I remember beginnings of Edge, probably beginnings of Spark too, we would never think of, like, signing a lease for more than a year. Two years, maybe, max. Yeah, it'd be like, oh my God, I don't even know if we're going to be still around. The co-op has had mostly a steady membership all these years. None of the founding members are still with Spark. Many of them went on to work with other, more traditional galleries. So it appears that their once-considered fringe work found a market, leaving room for the next generation of artists who want to develop their work independently in the company of other artists. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. If visions of Labor Day weekend are already dancing in your Wednesday head, listen up. Author Adrian Miller calls himself the soul food scholar. For his latest project, he's traveling the country to taste barbecue and to explore its African-American roots. We'll find out a little bit about what he's learned and get some tips from the backyard barbecuer. Adrian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Barbecue varies a lot by region. I think of everything from sweet sauces and vinegary sauces to places where sauce is more of an afterthought. Is there a Colorado style of barbecue? Yes, but it's something that we've let let go a little bit. Uh, so we were known for lamb barbecue. In fact, if you go back to the 1890s in Greeley, they used to have something called potato days. And so in, a, in a, a conjunction with the harvest, they would actually have a lamb barbecue for 10,000 people. Oh, my God. And well into the 50s, we were known for the lamb barbecue. But then for some reason, it just kind of fell off. Potato Days was a lamb day. That's fascinating. Um, With all the different styles that are around the United States, is there a common thread or something that defines barbecue? I would think that it's really cooking uh, meat for long periods of time over low temperatures. I think that's what people mostly think of when they think of barbecue. But there are certainly people doing legit barbecue at high temperatures at a shorter period of time. But most people think low and slow. We mentioned that you've already been around the country learning about barbecue, so let's start close to home. You mentioned the lamb days. That is something fascinating about Colorado's barbecue history. Is there something about Colorado's personality now? Well, we've been heavily influenced by Kansas City barbecue styles in Texas, but I think we're starting to form our own identity. We've got more and more places doing lamb and bison and also just vegetarian options. So jackfruit, tofu, portobello mushrooms, because we Colorado has kind of this healthier image. So I think there's an opportunity there to, to create a signature style. Fascinating. And is there a person who stands out to you from Colorado's barbecue history? Oh, yeah. Guy named Columbus B. Hill. Uh, shows up in Colorado in the 1870s. He's originally from West Tennessee. Um, July 4th, 1890, when the cornerstone for the state capitol was being laid, he did a barbecue for 25,000 people in Lincoln Park. 
and he does barbecues all over the country. And um, I actually found his unmarked grave uh, site at the Riverside Cemetery, so I'm working on getting him a headstone. I think in more recent times, there's a barbecue chef here named Winston Hill, and he's a Super Bowl-winning quarterback in the 60s and went on to open Winston Hill's Ribs and Stuff in Centennial in the 70s. Are they related? They're not related. I do know the daughters, and they're trying to actually uh, kickstart that uh, restaurant because he passed a few years ago. But uh, yeah, but not related. You delved into the history of barbecue in the Americas. When did it start on this continent? So the earliest Europeans who arrived noticed that um, Native Americans were doing some kind of smoking technique, usually on a raised platform above a slow fire. But then you see all kinds of smoking traditions throughout the Americas. So you've got the pit barbecue, you've got the raised platform, vertical holes, angled sticks, all kinds of smoking was going on. And as you've been researching this, you really point to African-Americans as being formative in how this food developed. What role did they play? So for basically two centuries, African-Americans were the primary cooks and the standard bearers for good barbecue. In fact, many thought you couldn't have authentic barbecue unless you had African-Americans involved in the process, which is a stark contrast to today. Because today, especially in food media, you really don't see African-Americans celebrated that much. It's really two types of white guys, kind of the hipsters with the interesting facial hair and tattoos, and then kind of the Bubba type, you know, uh, the rural Bubba type. So I'm trying to just remind people, if you're going to talk about barbecue in the United States, you have to include African-Americans. And what did African-Americans add in terms of what barbecue today tastes like? So I think uh, especially red pepper seasoning, adding a lot of spice to the barbecue. Um, That was definitely a signature of African-American foodways. Uh, a heritage from Africa itself, uh, and just the technique and the craftsmanship that it takes to make good barbecue. I think a lot of those, the seasoning and the sauce and the technique all come together. And these cooking traditions, they grew up in the 1880s. Where would people have had barbecue back then? What were those days like? So in the 1800s, pretty much barbecue was big public spectacle. So a campaign, you know, they would have thousands of people show up for a campaign rally. Churches got in on the act. They found that barbecue was a good way to recruit converts. Uh, So in in any kind of public civic celebration usually had barbecue. So you're talking about all these barbecues with thousands of people. We're going to like step up our backyard barbecue (laughs) game. You've been around the country. And how do you describe really good barbecue? So to me, I'm a spare rib kind of guy. So to me, good barbecue is going to be tender, It's going to be well-seasoned. It's going to have a nice sauce. Now, I do put sauce on my barbecue, not all the time. But to me, it's that combination of tender meat that's well-seasoned and has a little bit of smokiness to it, a little bit of chew. That's what I think of as good barbecue. And what kind of sauce do you use? So uh, I have a really good homemade sauce from a guy from my church. But if I'm going to buy a commercial sauce, I really like Stubbs um, barbecue sauce. I like the kind of sweet Kansas City-style uh, sauces. Even though Stubbs was from Texas, he has a th- tomato-based kind of sweet sauce. I was going to say, I, don't asso- I grew up in Austin, Texas. I don't associate Stubbs with Kansas City. I associate him with my hometown. Right. That's why I clarified. <laughs> um, as we mentioned, barbecue, it's really regional. Tell me about the feuds among people who enjoy good barbecue. All right. So right now, Texans are the ones that are really bragging about their barbecue. And I yes, would say that do. probably, <laughs> I would say that Texas is probably the most popular style now, just because you have really effective cheerleaders for that style, but it's really kind of Texas versus Kansas City, Memphis, and the Carolinas. They're the ones that go back and forth about who has the best barbecue. When I think about the barbecue that I grew up with, I think of smoked meats, sauces, kind of optional. Right. What do you, how do you describe Texas barbecue? So uh, Texas could bro- broken down in a lot of different regions. So central Texas, I would think of brisket, um, even spare ribs and sausage. 
Um, but then when you get to East Texas, you've got this other kind of beef sausage tradition and also more Southern style barbecue with spare ribs and other things. And then South barbecue, you've got the whole Latinx tradition of barbacoa, cow's heads, cabeza, all kinds of things like that. Well, that's good barbecue around this country. A lot of people will be eating barbecue over Labor Day weekend. And that's not to be confused with grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. <laughs> what does a home cook need to know? Uh, if you're doing a gas grill, you, if you want to add some smoke, maybe get uh, some aluminum foil and some wood chips, soak the wood chips and create a little pack, packet that's opened up with the aluminum foil so you can get a little smoke going in your gas grill. If you're going to do charcoal, I would recommend using an electric starter. Invest in that because there's no reason to drench these coals in lighter fuel, fluid and get that, that chemical taste. And then also just spell my name correctly on the invite. To your barbecue. <laughs> and for folks who aren't barbecuing at home, do you have a favorite barbecue restaurant here in Colorado? I have three that I really love. So one place is called Boney's in downtown Denver, an African-American joint. I love Owlbear, 29th and Larimer, um, which is kind of Central Texas style. And I also like uh, Roaming Buffalo because they're really doing a lot of Colorado-centric barbecue with lamb and bison. Roaming Buffalo is just west of the University of Denver, at uh, the corner of Downing and Wesley. Some interesting things going there. So those are kind of my top three. But there's a lot of good barbecue now in the Denver metro area. So that lamb and bison barbecue, getting back to an old Colorado tradition. Right, back to the future. <laughs> um, do you have any favorite, interesting experiences as you've been traveling and sampling barbecue? Yeah, so one of the things, I, I love this place in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It's called Dreamland Barbecue. And I went there several years ago. When you walk in... Essentially, you come in the restaurant, you, you take a seat, someone will come up and say, how many do you want? And all they're asking you is how many spare ribs you want. And you'll get something to drink, spare, rib, spare ribs, and white bread. Oh, wow. Yeah, transcendent experience. And for the places that do have sides, what do you think goes best with barbecue? Oh, I love potato salad. Like an eggy, with mustard kind of potato salad. But in Memphis, I had a really good mustard slaw on top of a chopped pork sandwich at a place called Payne's. I think that's the platonic form of pork sandwiches. <laughs> um, your book about barbecue, it's called Black Smoke, and it's scheduled to come out in 2021. How did you pick that name? Well, I was trying to think of something catchy, and it just so happened that they were picking a new pope. <laughs> and I just remember the white smoke comes out when they pick up a new pope. And I thought, oh, what about black smoke? And it just, it just rung true. Tell me a little bit more about why it's important for you to explore African-American history and food. Well, I think food is a great connector. So I think it's a great way to introduce people to aspects of American history they may not know of. Um, and um, it's fascinating stories. And I really want people to understand the contributions that African Americans have made to American cuisine. Thank you so much for joining us, Adrian. Thank you. Adrian Miller is a food writer. His next project, a book called Black Smoke, will focus on barbecue. In his day job, Miller is executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News.